You're listening to The Open Podcasts. The little voice on my shoulder said, you ain't good enough, mate. Well, that's two, three putts in a row. You're always, you're always striving as a sportsman to, to improve. I mean, you think you have to. Very, very great competitor. So why do I, how do I sort out this swing? Look, his whole goal was to win the Open, and I didn't realize what effort we were going to put into it. Still trying to find some sort of rhythm. He was a he was a perfectionist on the course. I think we were well suited. I mean, I knew we were going to work hard, but I mean, he really worked hard at it. You have to fail and fail and fail to learn. Also struggling Englishman Nick Felder. Realizing I had to take my game, everything to a new level. To me, what I remember is that our focus was now and forwards. You get players that are dedicated and they're focused, but not to the same extent that he was. I mean, he was just like one track minded. Okay, this is what I want to do. This is my goal. Nothing's going to get in the way of it. He's really got to get it together now. Other people were saying, do you think you should, maybe you should think about a club pro job? Yeah, honestly, that sort of thing. Well, now, this for a four. You can think and believe you can do something, yeah, but then you have to have trust to really know you can do something. Oh, well done. It's quite a journey. It's not, it's not a five-minute job, this game, is it? Nineteen seventy-one. So I'm now 13 and three quarters. The line I used, I was a sportsman looking for a sport, and I said to mum, well, I want to try golf. Literally the next day, we knew nothing about it. We knew there was a club on the other side of town, Wedding Garden City Golf Club, and I went down there that afternoon, I believe, and, and booked half a dozen lessons with the assistant, Chris Arnold. So I was having my little lessons. My next door neighbor gave me a seven and an eight iron. You remember those old ones with the old plastic cover around the shaft? old slippery leather grip and I went rummaging through the bushes and found 20 golf balls. Mum was a dressmaker, she made me a little bag, put my 20 golf balls in. So I played my first round of golf on my 14th birthday. Mum and Dad bought me a half set of clubs called St Andrews and I played all right. I didn't know the rules, I didn't know about you know losing a ball, that sort of thing. It's hilarious, I three putted the third green and I said that's stupid, I'll never do that again. And so, you know, things you didn't know. And so I know I hit it, say, mid-80s, something like that. Something I didn't, so I lost a couple of balls. So might have broken 90 first goes. Not too bad, something like that. My name's David Ledbetter. I um, coached uh, Sir Nick Faldo from 1985 till 1998. So pretty much during his heyday, he, he was just just one track minded as far as wanting to become the best and so I mean it was you, you get players that are dedicated and they're focused but not to the same extent that he was I mean he was just like one track minded okay this is what I want to do this is my goal nothing's going to get in the way of it I would sneak over to uh, I'd sneak over to the school it wasn't my school and there was a you know a football line obviously lying down and there was a long jump pit of sand and I used to aim at that and it wasn't far, even, even though it felt far then. You know, it's probably 60, 70 yards or something like that. The hilarious bit was I went back and saw that long jump pit years later. Because I'd be cross if I didn't get 18 out of 20 in the long jump pit, right? And I went back 10 or 20 years later. That long jump pit is eight foot wide. 
you know, and it's been 15 foot long. I mean, like any normal long jump here. So that was like, wow, I'm losing the head because I, I missed that thing. So now I'm in gross. It's, it didn't take long. So luckily, a year later, by the time I'm 15, it's like, that's it. I want to be a pro golfer. I've made that decision. I'm Fanny Sunason and uh, I caddied for Faldo for for almost 14 years. Oh, he, he had amazing feel. I mean, yeah, people talk about him being very static is not the word, but, but people talk about him as being very methodical. And yeah, I mean, in a way, if you look from the outside, it looked like he was with his swing. I mean, he, he was so stable with his swing most of the time. But I mean, his feel was amazing. The exactness of his shots. He hit shots that not many players have done. So I then left school at 16 uh, the, the next year and headed straight to the practice ground. And that was it. And I, and I lived at the bottom of the, of the golf course at Wellington City. And there's a famous fir tree there, which is still there. And that was my spot, tipped the balls out. And all I had was a green, a bunker and a flag. That was probably what made me into the golfer I am because I, number one goal was hit it over that bunker and stop it before the flag. And so every single shot I hit had a purpose. It was like hitting to this flag. Just by accident, I learned, you know, intention, make an intention on every single shot. So as I got better, I'm hitting fades and draws and then to make things exciting, I used to, you know, we were so much into slow motion in those days and, you know, rhythm, tempo. So I actually got really good. I could, from my little seven iron spot, I could hit a two iron and hit it in slow motion and hit this thing just to fly, you know, and get onto the green. So then we'd hit hooks and fades and then you'd whack it in the bushes and go in the bushes and play it. And he did it at a time where golf was different. You know, the ball was moving more if you missed it. The golf clubs were different. They weren't as forgiving. The shafts were different. The feel he had for, you know, if he had five clubs that were the same, same weight, same head, same everything, he could feel the tiny, tiny, tiny difference. Same with gloves. His feel was unbelievable. And people don't know that. He, uh, he had so many shots in the bag. Uh, the way he could hit half shots, you know, today, a half shot is not required as much because golf is different today. So by the time we get to 75, 1975, I started that year off about three handicap. But then I'm, I entered uh, the Berkshire Trophy and I won that. I win uh, Berkshire, then I win the English Amateur at Lytham. I, win, I won the youth panel. So then uh, oh, I tried University of Houston, they said, well, this is the thing to do. Cut long story short, I hated it, nobody practiced. I lost all my morning practice time. I meant to be in a classroom, couldn't handle I'm like, when am I gonna practice? They just played, they didn't practice. So I, I lasted 10 weeks, came back. I won the Caris, and it was like, nobody was interested. And my girlfriend's dad said, well, you should think about turning pro. And back then you had to apply to the British PGA, to, then they had a meeting. And they got me in, and so um, went off to the French Open as my very first event. Yeah, and so then that would have led up to to West Lanks, and I won the qualifying there, led the qualifying, which got me into Birkdale. Who I thought brought a great breath of fresh air into this championship. 
and I think there's a great future ahead for him. It's nice to savour some of these great moments, the moments of the 1976 Open Golf Championship. I think I finished about 30th, something like that, middle of the pack, something like that, and I, and I, because I vowed, you know, my comment, well, I could do way better than that, and people are like, oh, yeah, who do you think you are, and all that sort of thing. I actually first met Sinek at a, at a tour event on the South African tour. He was actually, I think he might have been about 18 at the time. This was Nick first term professional, so he was probably 18. I remember I, I met him at uh, Victoria Falls. They, played, they had, a, had a tournament there at Victoria Falls, and uh, so I, I met Nick then, and obviously I'd heard about him. And uh, I mean, he started playing golf when he was 15, in actual fact. So pretty pretty rapid rise uh, up the ranks, shall we say. I know he won the, I think he won the English amateur. So my first goal then was to finish in the top 60 of the Order of Merit then, and I finished 58th with a couple of grand, like 2,100 or 200, amazing. I think I and Sandy Lyle might have been the last two that got on tour because we were full internationals, full England international guards, so I never went to qualifying school to get on to the British, it was the British tour then. So you jumped in your car and you went up and down Great Britain, and I was only allowed to receive prize money from the Open events. So, so the German and the Swiss Open was important to make some money at those. So I didn't win a lot. <laughs> Faldo turned professional in 1976. His earnings that year, a bare 2,000 pounds, 330 of them gained by finishing 28th in his first Open at Birkdale. But then amazingly, the next year, 77, it was Ryder Cup year. So now it's like, wow, this is my goal to make the Ryder Cup. And I finished eighth in the Order of Merit, and I made the Ryder Cup team. And we must sometimes pitch in young, unproven professionals. So that now, this year, frightening chances of fame or failure await perhaps most interesting Nick Faldo, 20 years old. Well, you play for yourself, but really you never think of that. You're thinking of the 12 other guys, you know, to make up the team. And then, as Tony Jackson said, you're also playing for, you know, 52 million people. And when he said that, that shook me. Yeah, I thought, gee, you know, that's scared the daylights to think that, you know, I'm out there and everybody's watching you. And I had a, obviously a great Ryder Cup, won, won my three matches, and then I played Tom Watson in the singles. He was open champion. Oh, Faldo with this for the match. He gets it in, and what a marvellous three days this youngster's had. Winning three points out of three. All at the age of 20 and on a course where he won the English Amateur Championship in 1975. The Ryder Cup series has again found justification by fine exhibitions of golf and by the arrival of Nick Faldo. I've played with Jack Nicklaus and Tom Watson and it really can help. Plus the fact of if you actually beat them, then you, well, you think, well, what's stopping me now? And then things really happened because I then had joined IMG with Mark McCormack back in the good old days when he, my contract with Mark was a handshake. And he got me in the match play, gave me an invite to the match play, and then gave me an invite to the long comp, which in those days was really high society. God, it was because there was only eight players. Because Arnold was there, Jack was there, probably Seve. I remember doing a photo shoot of Arnold Palmer and Seve, so that was very cool. And Gary played, he took me for dinner and I had Dover Soul in Paris, and it was 12 pounds. And I remember calling my uh, mum and dad, I've just had a piece of fish for 12 quid. I mean, I was paying two pound 50 for my B&Bs, you know, in those days. So <laughs> it was quite, quite something. And then it was St. Andrew's Open. 
but it was in 1978 that he was first in serious contention. This is Britain's young Nick Faldo at the seventh. Second shot to one of the familiar big, big double greens, Faldo's one under par. Hard to imagine that Faldo is barely 21. And a majestic stroke from him. And up ahead, Nick Faldo at the 18th. He's got to come over the Valley of Sin, that big depression sitting right in front of the flag, nips it off the road, which runs across the 1st and 18th, known as Granny Clark's Wine, and looks to be very good indeed, and it is. A real chance for a birdie three. Young Nick Faldo, coming hero if ever I saw one. Spectators poised everywhere. And that's a birdie, a round of 70. That's three under par for the three rounds played and very much in contention. And I played nicely. I, well, long story, I finished four back, I think, from Jack winning. And that's when I let, and I really felt it on the Sunday. I woke up and my chest felt like, wow, like somebody had a ton of bricks on me and my mother was really sympathetic, you know, I said, well, get on with it sort of thing. And I said, God, I feel like I've got a ton of bricks on my chest, but you know, like, get them, stupid boy, get on with it. And that's when I left St Andrews and I thought, right, I can do this. One day I'm going to win the Open. So Faldo for three at the final hole. Super performance. Yes, a nice smile from our Nick. You know, and then you go out, and I love the Open, of course. You know, every year you prepare and love links golf, and then I was always in there, had a, you know, a lot of good finishes. He was always focused, but he was extra focused when it was a major. And the Open, I mean, he loved the Open. And the Open is, it's also a different, different game. It's playing a golf course which normally is very bouncy so you hit different shots and more different trajectory there and then 83 comes along the 112th open would be something special that's for sure that fact was made clear by 5 40 p.m on the first day birdell 83 i start 6 6 double double how about that so this is nick faldo this would be a birdie at the 14th, on the heels of a birdie at the 13th, and take Faldo to level par. And what a fine putt, and what a courageous comeback by Nick Faldo after a 6-6 beginning. And it's probably the round of one of the rounds of my life. I shot 68, starting double-double. How about that? Oh, the mighty Nick Faldo makes the eagle three and goes to two under. Now then, has he, has he, has he? Oh, has he indeed. Well, this is marvellous stuff from Faldo. Couldn't have made a worse start, really. Started 6-6 six, six, and here he is with a putt on the last green for a round of 68. Terrific stuff. Uh, beautifully done. That is... Well, in my opinion, perhaps the round of the day. At 8pm, out on the practice tees, 
stand just two of the top contenders, Faldo and Watson. The American leads, but was erratic off the tee. The British player goes through his bag as a routine and as insurance against losing the swing in which he's grown confident. Tomorrow, to say the obvious, will be a big day. Today, Sunday, July the 17th, will be one of the most exciting days in the championship's history. Uh, he's dropped a shot at the first, and he is inclined to be quite aggressive as per a birdie. Well, that's the best possible thing that could happen to young Nick Faldo after the very unlucky uh, five he took at the first. It's about nine yards. There's a little swing from his left. Anyway, fast track, nine holes to play. I'm leading the open, going up the 10th fairway. Well, a lot of vocal support, but I'm not too sure it's doing this young man much good at the moment. A crucial part for Faldo. Well, that's two, three putts in a row. And Faldo goes to five under. And uh, no, that's the third holeable putt we've seen him miss. And in fact, he's dropped, well, we must say dropped strokes over the last five holes, and his chance seems to be dropping away and fell apart and all that and lost the head and blamed the caddy and all sorts of things. A couple of three putts in a row and, and that again was a, you know, another big learning curve of what it's all about. Then there's Faldo. What will he feel? Crumbs, if those, just those two, three putts had stayed away, you know, what would it have been? What, what could have been possible? You really don't know. It's all, it's all a dream. But um, at the end of it, I can look back and say, I played the, and I was involved, which is a great experience. So that must have started sowing the seeds that even though I won in, I won in America in 84 for the first time, and then by the end of the year, the little voice on my shoulder said, you ain't good enough, mate. So how do I sort out this swing? And that's when I met David Ledbetter down in South Africa at Sun City. I'd spoken to Nick probably in maybe 84, I think, because we were at Sun City. I know 83 sort of felt he should have won the Open at Birkdale and he didn't. And so in 85, that's when we really, really got together. But then thought about it and played lousy into middle of 85. And we were at Muirfield Village just missed the cut and David was there. I said, right, I've had enough of this, I'm ready. So we started working on the golf swing. And Lady Five said to me, look, I, I just feel like I need I need help to get to where I want to get to. And uh, so that's really where, where the whole story started. And of course, working on the swing is, is also long-term. You know, you're doing, are you doing short-term fixes or are you going to do long-term? So... You know, sometimes you have to find 
a slightly short-term fix, maybe for the day or for the week, but most of the time it was long-term with him. I mean, his work with Ledbetter obviously had started way before me, and uh, they worked long-term, and it showed. You know, just generally speaking to him about his game, and you know, he, he just felt that he was lacking something. Because, I mean, look, his whole goal was to win the Open, and his ball flight was such that he... As they would say in America, he was a high ball hitter. I put a lot of spin on his uh, shots. We were old school. You know, the old 70s ball flight was a lot of legs, a lot of hands. And so the ball went, started low and climbed. You know, it had a lot to do with the golf ball and the equipment and everything. And so that trajectory just didn't work. You had to have a much more penetrating, different ball flight. So really wasn't a great win player and so he felt look if he was going to win the open the thing he really needed to do is control the flight of his ball i mean he had a beautiful rhythm rhythm was always something that uh, he had a, a handle on which we never really altered and we sort of maintained that he said what do you think i need to do i said well you know i think there's certain things you need to do i think if you want to control the flight of the ball you've got to get a more rounded swing as opposed to this sort of upright look you know that he had I said, well, you know, your swing technique as such was probably, it was probably something out of the 70s. I, I started from watching television. So I'm watching the Masters in 1971. Because the Masters at Augusta is an orchestration of aesthetics, discipline and exclusivity. We got a black and white TV when I was eight. I got a color TV when I was 12. And that's how it all started. From the east of Scotland now to the west, to Troon, hard by the old Prestwick course where the Open began in 1860 and hard hit by the weather in 1973. Dad took me to Troon, we drove up, we had an old white, white VW Beetle and we had the camping gear and we drove up and we made camp outside of Troon. The 1973 Open Championship had big names and nostalgia. And I went down there every day and Dad which was great then, because Dad would say, right, I'll meet you under this scoreboard at five o'clock, and boof, and I was gone all day. And it was so cold and wet, I had my pajamas on underneath my clothes, underneath my waterproof. I don't think I had waterproofs, but you know, and then I had a jacket or something. But it was cold that week, and so I'm running around, and I loved it. So I loved it, I ran in between, I was right behind, you know, I was that little kid crawling between people's legs to see Wisecoff at that, one iron down the seventh off the tee. Weisskopf playing safe with an iron. It is absolutely plum bang in the middle. You couldn't find anything better than that, could you? Well done, everybody. Daddy gets it in. 276. And Tom Weisskopf from the United States is the open champion. So all sorts of those memories of, you know, the great ball strikers. I'd go on the range and sit and watch everybody, and that's where I kind of learned to mimic their swings. You know, I've got Jack and Arnold and Gary and Lee, and I've got Johnny and Tom Weisskopf, eventually winner. So I've, I came back mimicking their swings. So when I went back to Welling Garden, that's when I learned visualization, because I would go and play with, with two of my imaginary mates, Jack and Arnold. So Jack would fade it, Arnold would draw it, you know, Lee would fade it, Gary would hook it, Miller would fade it, Weisskopf would draw it. So that's how I used to go out and play, and, and I'm playing against those guys.
You know, if you look at old swings of Jack Nicklaus and Johnny Miller and you go back in the day, Tom Weisskopf, great players, obviously, but they had a, there was a certain trend about their technique, shall we say, where uh, essentially there was a lot of sliding with the lower body, a lot of what we call reverse C at the finish, which actually didn't, didn't help people's backs laterally, you know, high hands at the top of the backswing. And that, that was pretty much Nick. You know, I had to use the body more. I was very much willowy legs. I had the big kind of lag going back, a lot of legs. I was taught that, get to the top and say legs. And so legs went fast and then everything. And so I developed great timing. So that was really so important, how I could time the shots. So to change that, to get yourself more rotary, you know, turning around your body and using your core more and your stability more and then your different rotation of the arms was different, shoulders more and all that sort of thing was huge. Nick Faldo, very fluid swing and very, very great competitor. It's actually difficult to change a swing as you get older because you, you sort of form a DNA, you know, you, you create certain patterns. And so then he said, well, listen, you know, how long do you think it's going to take? I said, look, you never know how long it's going to take. So maybe you can play well in the interim, but I think you know, you should allow a couple of years to really get this right. So at that stage, he was, what, probably 27 or something, somewhere around that age. And a crisis looming for Nick Faldo. There's a little look of anxiousness on the Faldo supporters. In hindsight, ridiculous mistake to make it mid-season, you know. If I was advising anybody, I'd say either stop and disappear, you know, now you'd go and take your team with you. You take your sports psychologists and your physiotherapists and your trainers and coaches and go in two or three months of bashing and changing. You, you, would do a, you could do a serious rebuild. But, you know, I dragged it out through the season, so now I'm changing. It was just crazy to have a, a new backswing and an old follow-through. I mean, it's farcical. It was one of those things, maybe I was a little naive at the time, and I thought, no, no, look, if he's prepared to put the time in and the work in, and we, we really work hard, and I didn't realize what effort we were going to put into it. I mean, I knew we were going to work hard, but I mean, he really worked hard at it. And so he said, okay, I can't remember the exact amount of time he came to start with, but I said, look, let's just spend some time and work at this. And I think it was in June, I think, you know, 90, 90 odd degrees Fahrenheit temperatures and 90% humidity. You know, really, we got started early in the morning and worked a 10-hour 10, 10 day. I, w I would say that would be pretty pretty close to the mark. I mean, hitting huge buckets of balls, you know, we're, I mean, probably hit, you know, a thousand balls a day when you, you know, 500 balls in a bucket. So, I mean, that's that's a lot of hard work. And he, you know, he never complained. He was like, hey, okay, we got to do this. And he was, you know, we sort of had a combined goal uh, of getting him to where he wanted to get to. He wasn't even thinking it. It was like just trial and error all the time. And you would practice, go to the practice ground. You know, some days I'd think of something and go backwards and forwards. You might go down there five times in a day working on it. And you go to the tournament and you're four over after nine. And you're boom. And down at the bottom, there's a new name on the leaderboard, Britain's Nick Faldo. In fact, he's now four over. Head gets kicked in and come back again and kept doing it and kept doing it. Somehow kept believing in that. And this just went on and on. And you know, there was a little bit of, a little bit of trial and error in what we did. And I say, as long as you're patient, he says, I, he says, I don't care. He says, you know what, I want to win the Open and I just don't think I've got the game. And they called him all sorts of things back then, the press, you know, El Foldo and all sorts of things of that nature, which very unkind. I mean, because, you know, he obviously was 
tremendous player, uh, even so. I mean, but, you know, he, he had loftier goals than just to sort of make a good living out on tour. He wanted, to, he wanted to be the best. He wanted to be number one. So I couldn't play, couldn't hit my hat. And it, so performances dropped rapidly. You know, everything went wrong. No, he was never settled. He never settled over the thing. And he's really got to get it together now. Lost sponsors, nearly all of them. Obviously, the ones who stuck with me was Pringle, of course, Pringle of Scotland. A company called Glenwyn I was with, who made cast iron baths, you know. <laughs> so everybody else dumped me. You're not winning much prize money. It was the real dark days. It was really tough. So obviously, Sandy won the Open at uh, Royal St George's in 85. Sandy you know, and then Greg wins the next one. A great victory for Greg Norman. That would have hurt. It was like, well, you know, I'm not even thinking of that right now. Faldo fighting to find some of his form of the to It was really tough, but somehow I, I kept that determination and that will to not give in. Also struggling Englishman, Nick Faldo. He's been in the wilderness for the last two, maybe three years, working on his new swing. Still trying to find some sort of rhythm. And that's the way it's been going all day for him. In fact, all season. If it was anybody else, I mean, I think they would have sort of chucked it in and said, no, gee, I, you know, this, this is ridiculous. I'm not... I mean, he was missing cuts. In fact, it, it turned out he actually had to finish in, like, the top ten in the last round of the year to keep his card. I think it was... In fact, it was at Disney, which was just down the road from where we were. I had to finish second in America to keep my card at Disney, and I did. So, you know, it's amazing what you can do. And he did it, you know, sort of almost through power of his mind. I mean, he, his, his game wasn't where it should have been, no question, but just through the power of his mind, you know, he was able to keep his card. And it was a very interesting time because it, obviously a lot of negativity around. I mean, heavens knows what it would be like today with all the social media, but I mean, back then, even then, you know, there were reports in the paper and, you know, what's he doing, you know, and my name was Mud and... Uh, this is crazy what he's doing, you know, he was European Order of Merit winner in 1983, I think. Why is he doing this? This talented individual is now going to fall by the wayside and blah, blah, blah. You know, so there was a lot of negativity in what he was doing. And, but, you know, he, he stuck to his guns. And I'll tell you, it was amazing. So I didn't make the Masters in 87. And I had to, I went and played in Hattiesburg at the, you know, the, wasn't even a tour then, it was just a scheduled event opposite the majors and that's when it clicked we finally found something in the swing got the fade really got the fade going got the trust of the fade and then I went there and I shot 467s finished second and that was it that was the click and from England Nick Faldo whose new swing is beginning to work he's playing again as well as he did in 1983 when he won five European events oh. you know 1983 did I think I could win well probably yes but then pressure, whatever, couldn't handle, couldn't handle the situation. So that's really, yeah, I'm sure I've felt, yeah, you can, you can think and believe you can do something, yeah, but then you have to have trust to really know you can do something. So I guess I hadn't found the, the knowing. I know I can do this. You get that element of doubt caused by failure, but that's how you learn, isn't it? That's how, yeah, we know that. A lot of People don't still fight that. I mean, you have to fail and fail and fail 
to learn. So that's what I put together and realizing I had to take my game, everything to a new level. The game and trust, and trust is a massive word and if you trust your swing, so you know you can put that, club it onto that ball under any pressure. You can hit your fade or your draw, you can do whatever you want to do. It was from that slough of despond that Ledbetter had dragged him. His victory in the Peugeot Spanish Open signaled a return to the big time and was the launch pad for his career to enter the stratosphere of golf. It signaled the end of the most barren period in his entire career, three years without a tournament success. After constant examination of the swing that had let him down at Birkdale, at last Faldo was happy with his game. This was to be his 15th tournament victory in 12 years on the circuit. He also had four other top five finishes in the run-up to the Open at Muirfield. Faldo hadn't had too much to smile about in recent years, but he certainly did now. Yes, it was like a, an open golf swing. I mean, whereby he was able to sort of flight the ball correctly, work it both ways depending on the wind, be able to hit knockdown shots. It was sort of a, a designer swing, shall we say, to win the Open. I always thought if he had a eight time for sure and down, he was looking at a birdie. He was definitely looking at hitting it inside the putter. I haven't seen that many players that had that uh, ability to hit the ball and hit his irons. I mean, his distance control was outstanding. One player I think about that has that today, and I haven't seen that many players, is Colin Morikawa. When you look at it, I mean, he was probably one of the greatest iron players in the history of the game still, you know, from a control standpoint. So I guess that's what I was looking for. Then the ultimate test came at, at Muirfield in 87. Next week on The Open Podcasts. The signs had been coming. He was in his bubble longer than most people are. No, you're all right, mate. You're going to win the Open. 18 pars. Par. Pa 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 As the countdown to the 150th Open at St Andrews continues, the Open's official website has more content than ever before to whet your appetite for a landmark championship. Visit theopen.com today and explore our vast library of videos, as well as a host of new features, championship updates, ticket and hospitality information, venue guides, every episode of the Open Podcasts, and much more. This has been an original audio production from the Open.